0: All right, well, turn to the book of Daniel, and we will uh, get a speedy start to this wonderful passage. And as you're turning there, or to this wonderful book, as you're turning there, I want to uh, ask you uh, a very serious question. And I'll, as, you, uh, as you continue to, to find the book, it's, uh, it's the last one of the major prophets, um, I want to ask you this question, this question. And uh, that is, how are the choices that you are making? Uh, you'll have to flip me there, Addison. It's not working for me. How are the choices that you are making? Because the fact is, uh, 20th or 18th century philosopher Albert Camus, he said that life is the sum of all of your choices. Life is the sum of all your choices. That's a little simplistic, actually. Uh, because uh, there's more to life than just the decisions that we make. There are greater realities than us. However, the fact is is that the choices that we make do matter. And if Jesus is not Lord of the uh, over 1.8 million choices that you'll make in your lifetime, uh, if he 's not Lord of those choices, then he's not Lord at all. It's our responsibility each day and in every choice that faces us that we would follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the wisdom, of God's counsel that's been revealed to us in His Word. And only then will we feel the pleasure of His definition of our past and His promises for our future. Now, I begin that way because this truth is particularly relevant. And uh, it's not give me a signal, guys. Switch that slide for me. Um, it's particularly relevant when we think about the apocalyptic literature of the Bible. And part of what I've looked forward to most in this series is getting a clear perspective on books that I've never really had the courage, yes courage, uh, to dive into and preach like the book of Daniel uh, and the book of Revelation. And this series is going to bring us head on with that and I look forward to the study and to uh, to standing before you today and then uh, when we finish our series with the book of Revelation and talking to you about this idea of eschatology or the end times. And so... This idea of eschatology, yeah, there we go. This idea of eschatology, uh, it, it comes from the, the Greek word eschatos, and eschatos is where we get our word end times. That's the English translation of it. And so, um, so if you hear someone talk about their eschatology or their eschatological views, it can get very difficult and very confusing. So, for instance, this morning, are you a dispensationalist who holds to a historic premillennial view of the rapture and a futurist view of the prophecies in Revelation? Or are you someone who holds to the amillennialist view uh, who endorses covenant theology and a preterist view of the prophecies of Revelation? Or maybe you are a pre trib progressive dispensationalist with a historicist, historicist view of the prophecies in Revelation. You get, I mean, if you're confused right now about any of those words that I just said, you're in good company. Because, sadly, I guess not sadly, but it was only as Tim Mathis, who I discipled when he was coming up in the youth ministry here, and as he went to seminary, he's now a pastor, uh, Tim, he was going through seminary, and he had a much better grasp on these things than I did, and so I just sat down with him one day, I was like, explain it to me. And so he did, he took time to explain it to me, and I was like, oh, okay, so that's what they always meant by that, because I never really, this this is my perspective, and uh, this is my perspective. Any complex system of eschatology that isn't measured by or focused on our current spiritual life and mission in light of Christ's return should be avoided. So, so if if you are a fan of some of the best-selling TV preachers, right, who really they talk a lot about blood moons and and uh, and and the rapture and the millennium and the, you know, when's Christ going to come back and all these kind of things, it can get really campy, but it can also become just a really futile endeavor. Now, it, it might seem odd to say that the study of biblical perspectives can be futile. But you do realize what James says about the devil himself, that he's got better, purer doctrine than most of us have, right? And so I think sometimes the devil would use an imbalanced view of the Bible to work against us and to get us divided, right? Or to get us just worried or consumed with the thought that if I don't have these things somehow nailed down, that I'm not going to get into heaven one day, right? And so, and so if, if if you are if you are the kind of person who loves talking about these things, and I really want you to call me because I, I, I really would love to have conversations about this. But if you're just kind of the person like me who says, you know what, I'm fine with knowing that one day Jesus is going to come back, and that's the only <laughs> that's the only uh, only date on God's redemptive calendar that I'm worried about. Then 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 that then that's great. That's okay. But today, we're going to be dealing with some of this apocalyptic literature, some of these views of the end times. And my hope is that as we look at the book of Daniel, that 1 John chapter 3, verse 3 will be true of you. It says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he himself is pure. You see, what John is saying there is exactly what we want to happen today, that our hope should lead to Holiness. That our view of the future should lead to a transformed life here and now. That's the goal. Is that if we can't connect it somehow with what's going on in our lives right now, to help nurture our faith right now, then it really does us no good. It's, it's, really, it's really, I mean, because all Scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable, right? And so if it's not profitable in our lives, if it's not transforming us, then we need to take a, a real close look, not at whether or not the Scripture's right, because it's always right, but at whether or not our heart is right. And so today, as we jump into the book of Daniel, we want to understand that God is the God of history, that He's sovereign over all of history. And so let's jump into the story, Daniel chapter 1. See, the book of Daniel is, if you want, and if you want to pull out that... Uh, uh, that sheet that was on the inside, you had a bunch of them this morning because the copier was broken. And, uh, and so Joel and Obadiah are in there, are, are in there as well because we'll do Joel tonight. We did Obadiah uh, last week. But um, if you want to turn over to the graphic that actually is on the back, this will help you get a good idea of what I'm going to be saying in the next few minutes. And so the book of Daniel is actually broken down very clearly into two parts. Chapters 1 through 6. Uh, are the stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon. Chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel that he had about the future. But this two-part shape is made even more interesting by another distinction in the book, that the book begins in chapter 1, written in the language of Hebrew, and then in chapters 2 through 7, it switches to Aramaic, which was the common diplomatic language of Daniel's day. Now, remember, Daniel was going to Babylon, which was like a melting pot of all the cultures that Babylonia had conquered, right? And so uh, Aramaic would have been widely spoken of there in Babylon. And so that's why Daniel switches to Aramaic. But then in chapters 8 through 12, when Babylon fades in view and God's future kingdom that involves Israel comes back into focus, he switches back to Hebrew in chapters 8 through 12. And so Hebrew in chapter 1, we don't, and we don't get this from our English versions, but it shows a coherent uh, kind of approach to these different sections. Chapter 1 is kind of an introduction. It's in Hebrew. Chapters 2 through 7 are in Aramaic, and then chapters 8 through 12 are back in Hebrew. And so if you're familiar with where we've been going with the story of Israel, then you know that... Way back in 2 Kings chapter 24, it is recorded that uh, the kingdom of Babylon came in and they conquered Judah. They conquered Judah. In fact, look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar. Not not related to Alexander Shnara. Okay, um, to the house of his God, and place the vessels in the treasury of his God. And so Israel, namely southern Israel, the, the kingdom of Judah, which was the um, the whose capital was Jerusalem, is conquered, conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar, who is the uh, king of Babylon. And so in chapter one, Daniel and his friends are exiled. Right? They are exiled after Babylon conquers Jerusalem, which, once again, which is in 586 B.C. And what happens is they take the, the best and the brightest of the Hebrew young people and they put them into the court of Babylon. Right, And we know these names. Right, You have Daniel and then you have the three guys who are known more by their Babylonian names than they are by their uh, Hebrew names. And we all know them. Let's say them together. They are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, and so they are recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon, but when they get there in chapter 1, they are immediately pressured to give up their Hebrew identity, namely their faithfulness to the Torah. Remember that God gave the Torah to, to the Israelites to define them, to even go down to define the way they ate, right? And so... The fact is, is that when they entered into this pagan land, they were immediately challenged on whether or not they should adhere to their past uh, religious uh, uh, duties or the prescriptions of God. And they saw this challenge as an opportunity, which is often the response of faith. And they said, well, we will be faithful to the Torah. And how about you guys come back a few months later and check on how we're doing And I bet you will be healthier than all these other jokers over here. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. God actually honored them, and they were elevated in their position there in the king's palace. You see, many people, and this is critical for us, I think chapter 1 starts this way, because the exile, it, it just absolutely devastated the worldview of Judaism. They came to a point where they recognized, to some degree, their idolatry, or some of them recognized their idolatry. And and just like us, we think, well, I've sinned and now God has abandoned me. That's kind of what they thought too. But the fact that Daniel chapter 1 begins like it does show that far from abandoning them, what is God doing? God's doing the same thing that he did in Moses. God's doing the same thing he, he did in Joseph. God's doing the same thing he did in Samuel. God's doing the same thing he did in David. God is not left without a voice because God, in many ways, is not dependent upon us. Job chapter 42, verse, verse 2, Job says, I know that you are good and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And so God's purpose is to send them out in exile, but then to make them exactly what he promised Abraham he would make them in Genesis 12, which was a blessing to the nations. But it would not be a blessing, this is key, it would not, they would not be a blessing to the nations by doing the exact same thing that had got them, gotten them sent, sent into exile in the first place. They got sent into exile, they got exiled because they were compromising. They were trying to marry the world with the God of Israel, with the, what God had told them to do. And so it's almost like in Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that something has snapped and they recognize, oh, okay, so I'm supposed to be distinct from the world. And as they go in in chapter 1, God's faithfulness to them to exalt them to a place of prominence is brought to the forefront so that the overwhelming thought is at the end of chapter 1, God's not done yet. God hasn't abandoned us. No, if, if we will be faithful in due time, God will raise us up just like first Peter five says. And so the next section that we get into is chapter two. There are these dreams and these persecutions and these judgments. And there's once again, the graphic really helps you to see the connections and the pairing of these chapters. And so if you look at it, uh, on the left, you have chapter two and then it's pair. There's a little chain link in between the two. It's pair is what chapter what's to the right. Chapter seven, and then you go down to chapter three. The pair is what? Chapter six, and then you go down to chapter four, and the pair is what? Chapter five. Okay, so this it's kind of this U-shaped structure. Okay, two's paired with seven, three's paired with six, and fours paired with five, and that's the closest thing you're going to get me to numerology in the Book of Daniel. Okay, um, and so twos paired with si- seven, three's with six, and fours with five. And so let's just trace these through and see how they flow. So in chapter 2, the king has a dream which no one else in the kingdom can interpret but Daniel. And even though Daniel's interpretation of the dream indicates future destruction of Babylon and an explanation of other kingdoms that will come, that verse 44 of chapter 2 tells us that God will actually set up, that's the language uh, that Daniel uses in describing what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, look at verse 46 of chapter 2. He falls on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. So really, this is, this is essentially like me going into the Oval Office to President Trump and saying, hey, I got bad news for you. Uh, you're actually, you're, you're going to have to resign next month. And, some, and, 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 uh, and Mike Pence is going to become president. And Donald Trump hitting his knees and, and saying, well, I, I, serve the, I, I bless the God that you serve, right? It's, it's extremely counterintuitive that that would happen. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of a nation that has just conquered almost every one of the nations around it. And yet he is so confounded and perplexed and troubled by this dream that the truth of the dream that Daniel brings out humbles him. And so basically after that, Something changes. And, and one of the greatest thing that cha- things that changes, look at verse 48. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So, so Daniel gets exalted to the highest place, to the right hand of Nebuchadnezzar, just like Joseph did in Egypt. It, sounds, it kind of follows a pattern, right? So Daniel gets exalted, not only over the wise men in Israel, but over the entire kingdom, the entire nation. And then Daniel hasn't forgotten his friends, and so in verse 49, Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. And so sometime after the promotion in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar kind of hits a crazy streak again. And he demands that people worship a statue of him under the threat that whoever does not fall down, verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship him shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And this is where the stories get really familiar, right? We love these stories, the story of the fiery furnace. In fact, look at, uh, look at verse 8. Uh, it says, Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Now this is, a, this is really interesting. Because the Chaldeans share a common heritage with Israel. Who was, uh, who was from the Ur of Chaldeans? Abraham, right? So Abraham lived in that region, was, was a Chaldean himself, and Abraham's family, they're now the ones who make up the Israelites. But the Chaldeans stirred up this trouble uh, against the Jews. And specifically, Daniel's friends are targeted for persecution because of their faithfulness which really should be expected by all faithful followers of Christ living in a pagan nation. As Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so you know the rest of the story. They are thrown into this furnace, but they are shielded from death. Why? Because there's a mysterious fourth person. In the furnace with them. Once again, God is faithful. God will not be left without a voice. And God has sent his people out to be a blessing of the nations. And when God sends his people out to be a blessing of the nations, he goes with them. Right? Even into the fiery furnace. Look at verse 25 of chapter 3. Uh let's start at 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. And he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like, hmm, a son of the gods. Kids, what do we call that from VBS? A Christophany, Christophany, yeah, I I knew it would come back to you. A Christophany, Christ in the Old Testament, the fourth one walking with them, is the Son of God. It is a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus Christ. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not know him by name, but they knew his character, didn't they? Because he shielded them from the flames. And the result, more praise. Look at verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, the cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 30. Or, uh, let's continue at verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. So basically the king recognizes these guys have disobeyed me and their god has honored that disobedience. And he says, Therefore I make a decree in verse 29. Any people, nation or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. And their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon, which is kind of funny because they were already over it. And so it's kind of like, I guess they were like, you know, a little bit higher. Maybe a pay raise or something, I don't know. And so Nebuchadnezzar sends out a decree, though, in chapter 4. Remember, this is, once again, God's out to restore his blessing among the nations, and now you have the king and the most powerful nation on earth, Praising God in chapter 4, at the beginning of chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion endures from generation to generation. Truly beautiful words that the king pens. But the fact of the matter is, is that Daniel actually... Uh, sees, an opportun- or sees a problem here. He sees a problem. King, your heart, or I mean, your mouth is speaking certain words, but is your heart reflecting the humility necessary to approach God? And so Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. And guess who the only person that can interpret this dream is? Daniel again. So in verse 19, Daniel interprets the second dream and basically tells Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to humble himself, and he doesn't. And the result is that he becomes like a beast. I don't know if this is the first Beauty and the Beast uh, tale. But look at what it, it says. Immediately, in verse 33, Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. He was an ugly guy, right? But look at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar speaking again, I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Now, the reason that this is paired with chapter five is because it kind of follows the same pattern. Uh, God wants to get the attention of the king, and so he does uh, something miraculous. In chapter four, it's a dream. In chapter five, it's what we get—a phrase. Can you read the writing on the wall? Right, that's where we get it from, Daniel chapter five. And so, God in chapter five is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar's son, whose name Belshazzar. And he writes on the wall, basically saying the king has been found wanting. He's not humble. And in both cases, Daniel tells the kings to humble themselves. Nebuchadnezzar finally humbles himself, and he's restored. Belshazzar does not humble himself. And look at the end of chapter 5, verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years years old and so the fact of the matter is there's something there's there's a really neat thing that happens in uh chapters four and five that your graphic brings out for you but there's a there's a certain dignity that god has placed upon the human being being made in the image of god all human beings being made in the image of god they bear his likeness they are they are they are unique Uh, we have a special calling among all the other creatures of the earth right we are the ones who get to be in a personal relationship with God. That's, the, that's God's creative design. But we know that after creation, in the book of Genesis, came the fall. Well, What, what, what kind of far-reaching implications does the fall have on mankind? Well, it not, it's not just that they're sinners and that they're separated from God. But what the story about Nebuchadnezzar actually relates to us is that those people who indulge in their sin, they become much less human than they are like an animal. That's that's, that's the reason the story of Nebuchadnezzar follows that train of thought like it does. When you sin against God, you are dehumanizing yourself. When you sin against God and you indulge in that sin, then you dehumanize and you objectify others. You become a creature of instinct. Well, guess what that sounds like? That sounds like the animal kingdom. Where there is no reason. there There is no God consciousness. There is no desire to relate to God. There is just instinct. There's the smell of blood and there's the attack when it's, uh, you're in the ocean and there's a shark. There, there's the dog-eat-dog there's the dog world as we describe it. Where people are just concerned about getting for themselves. Once again, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And so one of the problems with humanity that the book of Daniel brings out is that human beings have fallen to the place that when that you not only have individuals who indulge in their sin but you have leaders of who are exalted in the positions of nations who are just like animals and in being just like animals they create kingdoms of violence and oppression and suffering and the only the only way that that king or leader or nation can find deliverance is through humbling themselves before Almighty God, which is why 2 Corinthians 7.14 says just that, right? Well, in chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar humbles himself and is restored. In chapter chapter 4, he humbles himself and he's restored. In chapter 5, his son doesn't humble himself and he's killed. So that's why those two chapters go again together. So there arises a king named Darius the Mead. And Darius is convinced by some of his so-called counselors to make prayer illegal. To, prayer to anybody but him, illegal. And I think possibly this just was to target Daniel. We kind of have the VeggieTales version in our mind, right? And we think it's Junior Asparagus playing Daniel. Uh, and he's like this little boy, Daniel and the Lion's And That's not the case. It, it's thought to be that Daniel was, was definitely over 60 possibly even closer to 70, 75, when Darius the Mede comes into power in in Babylon, begins the Medo-Persian era. And so he actually, uh, this law is created to target Daniel, who's been head of all the wise men for a long time now. He's been very influential for decades in a foreign kingdom. And the law says if anybody prays to anybody but Darius, then they are to be thrown into a lion's den. Martin Lloyd-Jones is an old British preacher. He said this one time. He said, faith is a refusal to panic. And that's exactly what Daniel does, right? Daniel doesn't panic. And where does he go? He goes to the place that's most familiar to him. Back to his knees, praying before Almighty God. Now, a lot of preachers at this point would say something like this. Sometimes following Jesus will get you in a lot of trouble, right? And if it doesn't get you in a lot of trouble, you might not be doing it right. Right? <laughs> And so Daniel follows Jesus, and it gets him thrown into a lion's den. But once again, this entire time, God's faithful, right? Like Like we've heard sung to us today, like we saw last week, God is faithful. His mercies are new every morning. And so Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den with his faith being a refusal to panic. And so Darius throws him into the lion's den, but once again, Daniel is vindicated. The next morning, the lions are maybe sleeping beside him, and he's kind of petting one, just this... Awesome, You know, I, I just picture, you know, the den being opened up and Daniel's just kind of, maybe he's laying back on one and he's got, he's got two lions beside him. He's just kind of stroking their mane. Kind of like, my God's got this, right? I mean, no, you can't harm me. And so that leads to chapter 7, which is, the, which is the last chapter that's got this Aramaic in it because chapter 7, Daniel himself has a dream and the rest of the book of Daniel is different. And in Daniel's dream in chapter 7, these different beasts arrive representing different kingdoms that are coming in the future. And then if, you got, if you're looking at your graphic, they do a really good job with it. And then a super beast that is meaner and uglier than all the rest. He's got one big horn in the middle of his head. And he, he comes to the forefront. These horns traditionally in Hebrew literature represent kings. And so this super beast comes and he exalts himself above all people on the earth, but then He is destroyed by these two figures, the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, who if you're familiar at all with the New Testament, you know that that's God the Father and God the Son. And so look at chapter 7, verses 27 and 28. It says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him and here is the end of the matter As for me Daniel my thoughts greatly alarmed me my color changed but I kept the matter in my heart and You know what Daniel's saying Daniel saying that all these visions and all these dreams that come in chapters 8 through 12 their entire purpose was for me to fix my eyes on the truth of who God is not just what I've seen him be in my life Not just what I've heard about him being in the lives of others, but what I know he is faithful to be in the future. And that is why hope should be what characterizes the Christian life. This hope rooted in faith. I'm behind, sorry. Hope rooted in faith. And that's really the beauty of the rest of the book of Daniel. Because the fact of the matter is, that when we think about the future, you're not going to have a clear picture. Let's face it, you probably are going to suffer at the hands of evil people. And even though you hope for and long for the reality that we should be the last generation before Jesus returns, that's probably not going to be the case. But God is faithful to fulfill His own purposes, and He will bring the next event on the calendar of redemptive history on His own. We have never been charged with the task of figuring out all of the mystery surrounding the prophetic images of Daniel in the book of Revelation. We haven't. But what have we been called to do? Well, I want to I recall your mind to somebody that I think Jeremiah. I think, I think it's nothing new for us to have scripture like in plaques on our walls or, you know, like in vinyl stencil uh, across our door frames or anything like that. that. That goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, right? I think Daniel put it into practice in his house there in. In Babylon, because you want to know, you want to know who uh, uh, Daniel leaned on for hope, Jeremiah. And do you remember what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 29, not verses 11 through 13, but instead in Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning in uh, in verse 4, he says this: "Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon." So he's talking to Daniel. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. How do you find decades-long faithfulness in the midst of a pagan culture? by seeking to do good according to God's definition of good for that place. I think that's why Daniel was able to endure, not just the lion's den, but years and years of criticism. And when Daniel saw visions of the future, it gave him, even though he's greatly alarmed, it gave him hope, because that's exactly what God gives us his word to do. Daniel wanted God to live faithfully wherever he put him, no matter how wicked the place was. And so I, I wonder if you recognize that. There was a, a girl that came to D.L. Moody one time and she said this. She said, I wish you could see the kind of horrific people I work around. I've got a job. This was a long time ago. She said, I've, I've got a job at a factory and these ladies just curses flow out of their mouth. They tell lies about each other. They gossip. It's the most horrible environment that I've ever been in my life. Why would God put me there? And D.L. Moody Uh, characteristically, uh, just, you know, witty as he was, he looked at her with kind of this smirk of sarcasm, and he says, you know, that is odd. Why would God ever put a light in a dark place? (laughs) Maybe you've asked that question. Maybe you're like, why in the world did you put me here, God, working among this bunch of people? Well, it's odd, isn't it, that God would put a light in a dark place? Listen, all throughout Scripture, we're shown that it's God's will for you to stand firm, right? It's not God's will for you to fall. It's God's will for you to endure. It's not God's will for you to look for an escape, right? If it is, he'll show you, okay? There could have been a secret tunnel leading out of the the lion's den, but God didn't show Daniel that. And so God may want you to stay right where you are even though it hurts. So your joy is not going to be found in your current situation. What's it going to be found in? Who's with you in the situation? Because just like God was in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and just like God was in the lion's den with Daniel, and just like even when human beings need to sleep for their eight hours a day or so, like God designed us to do, God's still alive and well and active in the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar and even in Daniel. This is why Christianity thrives in the midst of suffering and persecution. And if you've been following the case of Andrew Brunson, the pastor who's, who's a North Carolina native who's, who's jailed in Turkey, this is what you've heard out of him. If you've been following the what's been called the genocide of Christians in northern Nigeria by the Fulani herdsmen, you've maybe seen that on the news. Maybe you didn't know they were Christians. That's kind of what the news media does. They kind of strip some of those labels. Uh, it, it's Fulani herdsmen, Muslims, attacking Christians uh, and they are burning their cities to the ground and killing them by the hundreds. And yet these people, in their testimony, are giving glory to God, they're worshiping Him, and they have this incredible faith. How? Because just like Daniel and his friends experienced, is that in the darkest valleys, Jesus is right there with us. G.K. Chesterton, who is a famous Catholic theologian, he said this. He said, God... I'm sorry, it was John Lennox, who's a Scottish mathematician. He says, he says, God does not give you strength before you need it, but when you need it. We want it before, right? We want it before. But he gives it during. And so my encouragement to you today is just simply that. Would you do what 1 Timothy 4.8 says, and would you discipline yourself for the purposes of godliness? So like Daniel, who leaned upon the words of Jeremiah, that you would take these words and these stories that we've looked at in the Old Testament and you, you let them bolster you so that the next time something unexpected happens to you, kind of like Darden and Priscilla today, kind of like B.J. and Martha in the last several weeks and kind of like you could testify of, when you have something unexpected come upon you, that you don't, you're not shaken in your understanding that God has been sovereign over all of history and he didn't fall asleep while he was watching you. It doesn't happen that way, but instead, God is putting a light into a dark place. This was exactly the testimony that came out of, of when Miss Priscilla was in the hospital with Mister Coy. There was a man who had had uh, something very severe happen to him, and she had been like in the in, he had been in the intensive care unit for like a really long time. And so, when Priscilla and Coy got there, guess who was there? That lady was, and y'all, she ministered to that family. More than I did. She was there every single morning. How's he doing? Well, you know, God's faithful. God's faithful. And she was testifying to others as her husband is laying in a hospital bed. And God used her in a number of families around there. She didn't see the hospital room as a surprise. She didn't, I mean, it was. It was a huge surprise to them and their family. But she knew, okay, well, God's sovereign over this moment, too. And so he must be putting me here for a reason. And she looked at the people around her as her mission field. And I'm telling you, Do the same thing in your life. Don't think that God has has somehow fallen asleep on you. Don't think that He's not watching over you. Don't think that He's somehow decided in all of these centuries that He's been working in our world to somehow be faithless to you when He has never failed anybody else. God is at work, and He wants to work through us because we're His church. But you know the only problem is? Is that sometimes because that pathway into his presence is not as familiar for us as it should be, we're not like Daniel. We don't define faith as a refusal to panic because we, we're not thinking primarily with a mind of faith. That's what 1 Timothy 4, eight tells us to do, to discipline ourselves, to think with the mind of faith, to pray, to store God's word in our heart, to meditate on the glory of his character. And when we do that and those crisis situations hit, then we'll just go right back there on that path where we know He is to be found. And we will find ourselves in His presence, and we will hear His faithfulness declared to us by the word that we've stored in His heart, that the Spirit speaks over us, and we will find that peace that surpasses all understanding. This is God's will for us. And so, once again, we started with choices, didn't we? And about the choices that we make are critical for what our life is going to look like tomorrow. And so what choice will you make today with this truth? Will it just be a stop and go Sunday message for you? Or will you store it? Will you meditate on it? Will you talk about it with your kids and talk about it with your friends or your spouse? This is where the rubber meets the road for us. And my encouragement to you is God is faithful. And if you're struggling with that today, once again, there's no surprise there because we struggle. But don't be silent about it. If you need somebody to pray for you, I'll be right down here in the front during this time of invitation. If you want to know Christ and the hope that he gives to us, then please come and see me. Because the fact of the matter is that when we surrender to him, we are surrendering to the God of history. We are surrendering to the one who is sovereign over all. And nothing that we encounter is a surprise to him. And that's what increases our faith today. And so let me pray for us and then we'll have our time of invitation.